Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Professor Beth Forrest and Dr. Greg Descent Morris about their book, Food in Memory and Imagination, which was just published in 2022 by Bloomsbury. Beth is a professor of liberal arts and applied food studies at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. She's also the president of Association for the Study of Food and Society. And Greg is tenured assistant professor in the Faculty of Business and Commerce at Keio University, Japan, and is vice president of the Association for Study of Food and Society. Beth and Greg, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. I'm glad to be here. Okay. Um, I was just thinking that this is a, a sort of an interesting episode uh, for me to record because each of us are in a, a different corner of the world and a different time zone. Uh, Beth is in New York where it's, I guess, um, seven o'clock in the evening. Uh, Greg is <laughs> Greg is in Japan where it's uh, nine o'clock in the morning. Right, Greg? That's right. And I'm in Wellington in New Zealand where it's... Uh, uh, very early afternoon. Um, anyway, uh, to start off, um, could you please tell us a bit uh, about your background, uh, starting with you, Beth? Well, I am a historian by discipline, um, but I've always been interested in food. Um, and so when I was able to study food uh, through the lens of history or history through the lens of food, um, I was really excited to do so. My particular area is at um, uh, early modern Spain, although my book chapter is completely different, but I'll, I'll explain later how I got from point A to point B. And I'm now uh, teach at the Culinary Institute which is primarily a culinary college, um, but yet we do offer bachelor's and master's programs. Uh, so I really get to talk about food in uh, many ways uh, through interdisciplinary study, as well as through history itself. And you, Greg? 
Uh, I'm an anthropologist. I got my degree in anthropology uh, from the University of Pittsburgh, uh, where I wrote a dissertation on um, the place branding of Kyoto, uh, Kyoto, Japan, um, and really how different actors used the idea of the local to engage with globalization. Uh, now, for the past three years, I've been at Keio University in uh, the Faculty of Business and Commerce, where I teach a class um, that's really all about food culture, and I teach other classes about design thinking and field research methods. So uh, some key themes in my research would be place, globalization, uh, and branding. Uh, thank you to both. Um, there is often a story behind every book. So what's the story behind yours? And um, in other words, how did the book come about? Beth and I were looking for a way to um, collaborate. Um, I had just finished doing an edited um, special issue of Food, Culture, and Society, which was focused on a really uh, narrow theme. And so when we were talking about how to collaborate, I think we wanted to do something that was a little broader and that included people from a lot of different disciplines, people who were looking at different regions of the world and really had um, a broad scope, but where they could connect on you know, some themes that could really be worked through these chapters. So um, when we're thinking about how historians, anthropologists, you know, philosophers, psychologists could work together, I think the themes of um, memory and imagination uh, came up as a really you know, viable possibility for this. And when we talked to other people, we, we sort of gauged um, a level of interest and decided to uh, forge ahead with the project. Of course, um, at the beginning, we had a vision for the book that was a little bit different than how it ended up. We didn't realize that it would have 25 chapters, for example, um, and some of the chapters changed along the way. But I think that what we have in the end is uh, really fun, really, um, you know, comprehensive. There's a lot of uh, different uh, disciplines and a lot of different areas that are covered. Indeed. Um, I guess the starting point for uh, any discussion, for any conversation that has food and memory at its core is uh, that famous, you know, Proustian moment. Uh, I mean, it's almost impossible not to think of uh, that when uh, you're talking about food and memory. In fact, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the first time that I saw the call for chapters for, for, for this book, which was uh, I guess three or four years ago, I uh, remember that the tentative title at that time for the book was uh, More Than Madeline. Uh, so for those listeners who may not be familiar with the story, could you tell the story very briefly and also tell us what do you think uh, that story, uh, that Prussian moment says about the relationship between food, uh, memory and imagination in a wider scale? So I think well, one thing I should point out, um, I don't know if you've both had the this now, um, but very few of my students have heard of Marcel Proust and instead, instead their reference is from a scene from Ratatouille. Um, yes. which is, yeah, right? Um, which yes, is true. saying something about modern memory. Um, but I think it also speaks about, um, 
universals and specifics in a couple of ways. So whenever you speak to uh, another human, really, um, you, you can't really deny that they have a food memory or that, and they have very strong emotion. I mean, I think that's, I think that's one of the interesting things. So when I talk to my students, for example, um, I'll often have them write a food memory to think about themes that come up in the discipline of gastronomy or the, the field of, I should say, the field of gastronomy. And um, I talk to them about how many times a day we may eat something or put something in our mouth. And um, most, the vast majority of them are forgettable. I can rarely remember something that I ate a week ago, but yet I still have a memory of something that I ate um, 20 years ago. Um, it's a really distinct and strong food memory. Um, and uh, it was with two friends and uh, they both remember this food memory as well, as well. So like I said, there's, I think that the thing about a food memory is that it's really an emotional experience as much as a complete sensorial experience. Um, one of the, the rare things about food is how it involves all of the senses. Um, and that could even extend beyond the five normal Western interpretation of, of um, senses to include um, a sense of fullness or a sense of hunger, et cetera. Um, and so what's unusual then is in the West, there's this iconic understanding of a food memory through one particular text, which is Marcel Proust's remembrance of, um, of, of Greg, what is it? Of, now I'm embarrassed, I can't even remember, of past things or, or thereabouts. And, um, and most people really pick up that it transports him back to his childhood, to this experience with uh, a family member. But, what they rarely also pick up on is it doesn't just transport him in time, but it also transports him in space um, to another place as well as another time. And I think that engagement um, of, of multi-axle consideration of, of movement, of not just the food as it passes through your mouth and through your body, um, but also the food memory as it or imagination as it changes you in time and in place became a, a fascinating multi, uh, multi um, I guess, axial way to consider this, this very narrow, this normally very narrow understanding. Greg, what would you say? Yes, I, I totally agree. I think uh, when we originally conceived the title of um, you know, more than the Madeleine, uh, we, we had this idea of really uh, searching all of those dimensions uh, that are kind of eclipsed when there's this focus on, you know, the iconic Madeleine and, and how it stands for so much uh, when we talk about um, memory, imagination, and food in you know, the food studies scholarship. And, you know, that, that was really an impetus for uh, trying to get a diverse uh, group of chapters. Um, of course, then we realized that uh, 
we didn't need to focus on, on the Madeleine to really do that, um, which is where uh, the title changed. Mm, I see. Um, and this is kind of a follow-up question on what uh, Beth mentioned earlier. When, when we talk about memory, we, we talk uh, almost immediately of the past. Uh, but do, do, would you say, Beth, that memories are exclusively things of the past uh, or would you say that memory has also have a uh, relationship with the future? Oh, absolutely. You cannot divorce one from the other. And I think, the, again, the other, we can even complicate this a little bit more in that there are individual memories and imaginations and there are collective memories and imaginations. Um, and if you start thinking about it more critically, um, most of us think that our memories are accurate, um, maybe hazy or fuzzy in some areas, but for the most part, when we think about something, we, we think about it with an, 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 a concreteness, right? An idea that we, there's a truthfulness to it when that's not necessarily the case. It's really more of an imagination of a memory. We're imagining that we have this correct memory. And uh, conversely, our imaginations are deep-seated in both the present and the past, right? You don't just imagine something in a vacuum. It's the culmination of all of your experiences up until that point, all of your knowledge, all of your reference points, et cetera. Um, and so although we put them on a, on a, we tend to put them on a spectrum, right? And see them as binary oppositions, they're in fact um, intimately entwined. Mm. Would you agree, Greg? Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, another point to this is really just how memory is worked in the present, you know, whether it's by individuals or uh, communities, you know, how there are different interests at play uh, when we have collective memories, um, even about something like food. Um, and so memory is not, you know, the, the kind of simple thing that it's often taken to be. Mm. Um, so, uh, this is an edited volume, right? And, uh, one of the challenges, uh, or I want to say nightmares, perhaps I, I haven't edited an edited volume, but this, this is just my assumption, uh, that, um, editors of an edited volume, uh, must be facing is thematizing the chapters to give the book a sort of themed structure. Uh, because you get all sorts of papers from, you know, all sorts of people who are from, uh, all sorts of disciplines. So I'd like to um, talk a little bit about how you went about doing this. Uh, what are the main themes of the book? What do you discuss in uh, you know, each section of the book? Very generally speaking, I know we don't have time to go into details, but and uh, also what disciplines the authors are uh, from. Uh, Beth, if you want to start. Sure. Um... To be honest, I think when we did the call for papers, uh, we weren't quite sure what we would get. Um, and, and so when you're doing a book proposal, it's at first it's a really daunting uh, task, especially for an edited volume, because you're not quite sure how all of the uh, papers are going to end up. Um, you have a vague idea, but it is, um, you know, could any paper, even if you read an abstract, could still go in so many different directions. 
And especially given perhaps the, the topic of memory of imagination, one might think that it would be simply broken up into the past and the present or the future. Um, but that really would end up, I think, in a, a disconnected idea, um, just because uh, it's not just multidisciplinary in that we have uh, philosophers, we have folklorists, uh, we have a couple uh, who are writing through the discipline of psychology, historians, uh, anthropologists, um, but also in terms of, um, of, of the topic itself, right? So again, you're having so many different access points to try and come together, which is why we started thinking about it through this lens of um, scope. And so the beginning of the book starts with the very intimate of uh, the body or the individual. Um, and it will span out um, into family, community, um, cities, nations, regions, and beyond. And I think that gives it a unique way of not trying to force um, papers together um, differently based on geography of, of place. So all of the all of the memories or imaginations of the United States or Europe or um, you know Australia, New Zealand, um, and 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 gets rid of those geographic boundaries um, and instead looks at commonalities. So it becomes very cross-cultural in that understanding as well as cross um, disciplines uh, next to each other. And so I, I like how it's woven together in a really different and I think unique way. Greg? Mm. It is unique indeed. And uh, uh, Greg, do you wanna add uh, anything to that? And also talk uh, uh, a little bit about you know, any challenges uh, that, that you faced uh, as an editor of the book, especially for junior scholars like me who are thinking about editing a book, uh, if you have an advice or experience that you wanna share. Sure. Well, uh, the book is 25 chapters. Um, so uh, it did require a great deal of work, um, especially because while we didn't want to, um, you know, limit the chapters to, you know, specific kinds of arguments or, um, you know, certain kinds of analytical frameworks associated with our disciplines. Um, we did really want them to engage with the key themes and to really almost in, uh, talk to each other. Um, so we did go through all of the chapters and gave uh, the authors a lot of feedback. And so that it did require a great deal of um, commitment on our part. So I'm hmm. extremely appreciative of Beth's work on this. Um, you know, with without her, <laughs> this book would have never, ever happened. Um, but uh, let's see. So going back to the first question that you asked, uh, I think, um, you know, when when we're thinking about uh, how to organize this book, uh, you know the idea of scale really uh, spoke to us um, because when we have right these key themes of memory and imagination, really some of the um, some of the sub themes that really appeared in a lot of the chapters in different ways had to do with the self, 
um, and with community, whether it's you know uh, physical communities or imagined communities, and uh, it sort of appeared as an intuitive way to organize, um, you know, all of these twenty-five different uh, chapters, um, especially because we do have people from different disciplines who are working, you know, uh, on literature or nutrition studies. Um, so it, it ended up being exactly, exactly what we wanted. And I think if, if you read it straight through where you have um, Lisa Heldke's chapter, which uh, starts out and is a lot, really all about um, individual memory and whether uh, a food that you remember eating, say 50 years ago, um, and the way that it might taste differently now is that something that you can actually know um and then you go the whole way through um past you know regions and nations and you end up with um beth's chapter which is about not nations or um that kind of thing but really about the supernatural and i know that beth will talk um more about that later so i'll uh stop right where i am Okay, yeah, that, that was actually uh, what I wanted to uh, talk about next. Um, uh, unfortunately, as much as I like, we, we don't have time to, you know, delve into each of the chapters uh, of the book, uh, all of which sound very interesting, but we definitely do have time to discuss your own chapters in book. So, uh, Beth, you have a very, very interesting chapter on um, uh, what is the American imagination on the food that is consumed in hell. And uh, this is largely based on uh, popular culture, if I understand correctly. And I really enjoyed reading this chapter, especially because I was a, a fan of the show Good Place, mm -hmm. which you discuss in, in the chapter. So could you give us an overview of the chapter and uh, talk for us about food from hell? Sure. So the chapter um, came in an, a really quite unexpected way, to be honest. My background is not American popular culture. My background is early modern Spain. Uh, but when I was working on my dissertation, I was reading a translation of Quevedo on his dreams and visions, the last chapter of which is a banquet set in hell. And um, I would, the, first, uh, the first course, it's all tailors that are consumed. Um, the second uh, course of this banquet in hell is all tailors again, um, but for the second course, it was each tailor's nationality determined the cooking method that they were done. Uh, so, for example, the Moroccans were cooked in brown butter. Um, the French were uh, cooked in ragu. The Italians were fricasseed and the Americans were cooked in milk. And I paused there and I thought, huh, for an early 17th century text, I wouldn't have thought, one, this idea of Americans, or second, that they were cooked in milk had um, arrived yet. It seemed far too early by a couple of centuries. So I forced myself to go back to the original text, and I realized that the translation completely added um, this, this idea of culinary nationalism. Um, and national cuisines. And it was written by an American, uh, or the translation was done by an American in the 19th century, which really struck me as a fascinating um, change in 
in what was valued. So by the 19th century, it was now this, this understanding of, of uh, culinary and, and, and nationalism. And um, from that, um, I started really thinking about American uh, Protestantism in particular, um, even if you're not of the Protestant persuasion uh, in the United States, you're still very much culturally impacted by it. And it, and it got me questioning or uh, trying to think about what it was or, or how Americans have imagined, right? In that hell is one place that's completely imagined or at least by living people. And so, and how did it appear and what does that culturally reveal um, at particular moments in time? And so I start with this translation, but I then continue on um, to, to look at Upton Sinclair, uh, more famous for his book, The Jungle, that expose of um, slaughterhouses in the Midwest and the plight of the immigrant worker. But he also set a, uh, wrote a, sh a short play that was set in hell. Um, and it really talks about different um, economic exploitative systems of capitalism uh, versus communism and socialism really. Uh, and all the way to in the United States, probably one of the most uh, important late 20th century pop culture institutions, The Simpsons, um, whereby Homer Simpson is uh, makes a deal with the devil um, by eating a donut, uh, which is a very traditional Faustian, um, but also Daniel Webster of this understanding of prosperity of um, of ethics and uh, and goes all the way to the good place, which of course is also really all about both ethics um, from a metaphysical sort of understanding uh, through religious, um, through ideas of food, of what is good food in the United States, whether it is based in taste, whether it is based in um, nutrition and what is the connection of American history with the idea of moral food. Mm, thank you, Beck. Uh, I really enjoyed, again, uh, reading the chapter. And I like that the, the, the chapter was the final chapter of the book, which was uh, kind of the definition of ending the book on a high note. <laughs> um, and uh, your chapter, Greg, is on a, a Japanese TV show about food. First of all, could you tell us a bit about the show? Because uh, I imagine not all of our, um, you know, listeners are may, may be familiar with Japanese context uh, and, and what it is about. And also, uh, could you give us an overview of the chapter and how it links to the main themes of the book, namely uh, food, memory and Im imagination? Sure. Um, so part of the reason that I chose this uh, specific show uh, to write, uh, you know, to write about for this chapter is because it hasn't really been written about um, in English. It hasn't actually even been written about a lot um, in the more academic literature uh, in Japanese. But um, it's called Kurishimbo Banzai. Um, it's a show that um, has been on Japanese television since 1975. Um, so that's a, a long time. Um, it's mm -hmm. also really um, distinctive because the episodes are only really usually about two and a half minutes long. Um, 
so obviously very short. As a result, it's called um, a mini TV show. Um, it's also uh, sometimes referred to as a food documentary uh, because at the beginning, when they first uh, conceived of the idea for this show, uh, they thought that what they wanted to do is go around Japan to um, usually rural areas uh, and they wanted to find what they call buried foods. Um, so foods that were you know, less well-known and they wanted to memorialize them um, by putting them you know, on television but it wasn't just about the foods themselves. So they wanted to showcase the producers um, and the communities that these foods were um, important to. Um, and so that was sort of uh, how the show started out. And obviously because this show has been running uh, for such a long time, uh, over the years, it has changed tremendously. Um, the show, I should say, too, always had a gourmet reporter. So a famous uh, Japanese man, always, um, who would go to these communities and talk to local people and taste, you know, usually one or two things um, in front of the camera uh, during this two and a half minutes, of course. Um, but um, over uh, the decades, really, the uh, way that the show was um, run sort of uh, underwent a shift. And so it went from really focusing on these local foods and the memories of these, uh, you know, you could say traditional foods um, to really trying to support uh, local foodscapes and local producers, but doing it really via consumption. Um, and so that's the thing that, that really uh, I focus on in the end is the idea that um, ultimately in its current um, state, the show is really about um, supporting local food systems via consumption as opposed to you know, anything like activism, for example, or some other more agentive uh, means of participation. Mm. Thank you, Greg. Um, this is kind of a special uh, question that I'd like to ask everyone whose work has uh, kind of clashed with the pandemic in one way or another. Uh, I was wondering how uh, COVID affected any aspect of this book. I mean, whether you're thinking around a certain subject or your writing or your, uh, you know, relationship with the publisher and so on, if at all. Um, it delayed. It delayed the book um, by, I would say nine months to a year um wow. and that's just because in the middle of it i think many of us were tasked with stopping our teaching or how we had historically been teaching and completely to think about it reimagine uh how to to convey or how to um how to teach in an online format um and and that might be synchronous or asynchronous. Um, and for, for myself, learning new technology was a, a incredibly burdensome task. Um, and then for our school, I'm not sure anybody else's, but we went completely remote and then we went hybrid and then, you know, we went back and then we went back to hybrid. And so every semester 
it was completely starting from fresh, all of your class material. And I think that along with just mental exhaustion, a number of our uh, contributors were mm -hmm. also parents, neither Greg nor I are, but for many who were um, suddenly being full-time workers or teachers, as well as full-time childcare, or they're, they're now homeschooling at least, a, a, a part of that um, made everything slower. Um, so I think on a, um, just from, from a logistic standpoint, that was what happened. I think from a content, what was interesting was one of the chapters is on post-apocalyptic post uh, imaginations of food. And when there started to be some supply chain shortages uh, and food was becoming scarce in some ways, or certain foods were, um, and uh, many people were going back to canning or making sourdough, uh, that certainly we asked the um, authors of that chapter to do a, a sort of follow-up um, with, the CDC in the United States saying prepare for the zombie apocalypse. So um, that that ended up being timely, although I think we would all prefer that it didn't happen. Yes, of course. How about you, Greg? Yeah, uh, so in my own chapter, right, because I was focusing on uh, Kirishimbo Banzai, it was interesting to watch how the show itself, which you know, encouraged uh, going out, going to these restaurants and um, going to, you know, different parts of Japan to experience the food culture, how it um, sort of moved to trying to say, yes, enjoy food, enjoy food while staying at home. Um, and so a different uh, means of cons consuming, you know, the nation. Um, another one that uh, really, Another chapter that really uh, shows this kind of change too in um, a, an unfortunate way is the fourth chapter of the volume um, written by um, Flores Jurado and her, uh, her account of um, Chef Gabrielle Hamilton's um, memoirs about um, food and, you know, the formation of her identity as a woman who is a chef. Um, sadly, uh, Gabrielle Hamilton's restaurant Prune uh, closed due to the pandemic. And that's something that um, appears in a postscript to the chapter. Um, but really, I think overall, there were so many life events that uh, different authors experienced as we were you know, working on this volume uh, from the very beginning. And, you know, I, I think it's really just a testament to uh, how resilient <laughs> a lot of um, the contributors are that the book ended up, um, you know, making it here with 25 chapters, um, even as we underwent, you know, so many uh, personal and professional changes. Thank you, Greg. I totally agree with you. Uh, there's obviously a lot more in, in, in this book and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But uh, before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask whether you're working on something right now or are you uh, thinking about doing a research on a particular topic uh, in the near future? Beth? 
So I actually have another book that's in process. It's another edited volume, and it looks at the um, the role of sauce in uh, identity. Um, so from a, a culinary standpoint, um, but also uh, thinking about national identity, familiar identity, et cetera. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited to get that one done. It has been an epically long journey. Uh, do we know when the book is coming out approximately, Beth? Oh, gosh, I hope I really hope by the end of this year, <laughs> if not uh, within uh, early 2023. But I'd, I'd love to get it done by uh, when we're still in 2022. Of course, that's really exciting. I can't wait to read it whenever it comes out. Uh, how about you, Greg? I have a few projects. Uh, one of them has to do with the notion of craft. Um, it's something that I've been working on for a few years, uh, and in particular looking at uh, how um, chefs or uh, apprentice cooks in traditional Japanese kitchens um, are really learning how to uh, cook uh, high-end Japanese cuisine um, when they are from outside of Japan, and what they do with uh, this knowledge and these skills um, if they go to another country to work afterwards. So really um, this idea of the transmission of um, culinary skill and um, the idea of how, you know, nationality um, and the idea of the nation really um, impacts this. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to travel outside of Japan. So that research has been sort of um, put on hold. Um, but I do have another project that I've been working on a little bit, um, and that has to do with uh, geographical indications for food and place brands in Japan. Um, most recently, I've been focusing on a, a sort of heirloom variety of um, sweet pepper from Kyoto. It's called the Manganji Togarashi, um, and it's a big green pepper um, that tastes you know, rather sweet, and there's a geographical indication for it in Japan. So I've been talking to farmers and visiting um, Kyoto um, whenever I can in order to do that. Um, in addition, uh, one thing that I've been thinking about is really the impact of uh, social media on um, Japanese foodways. And uh, I have started to head on over to Clubhouse, um, right, the um, audio platform Clubhouse to talk to Japanese producers. And that has been really interesting and it's been giving me some ideas for what I'd like to do um, if uh, it's not easy to travel internationally to do research. Uh, thanks, Greg. They all sound like very interesting projects. Uh, are you thinking of uh, turning them into a book or are they going to be like, uh, uh, you know, like a, a journal article or you haven't decided yet? I think I'm good for books for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, maybe, yeah, journal, a journal article um, or, um, you know, a book chapter or something like that. Hmm. Um, I mean, unless I can convince Beth to help me put together another um, edited <laughs> volume. Okay. Uh, so before we say goodbye, is there any further comments, anything you want to add, Beth? 
I, I just invite all of the listeners to really think about a food memory, um, but also think about what what area they think about when I say imagine, um, whether it is a meal, whether it's a meal with somebody from the past that you can no longer have a meal, what is your best meal, what would your best meal be, um, and, and think through it in complicated areas of do you who do you choose as a diner? What foods are you choosing? How does it make you feel when you're um, remembering or imagining um, to, to really live your own experience as you um, perhaps read the book? Thank you, Beth. And Greg, any further comments? Um, I, I can't really think of anything. Okay. Thanks, Amanda. Okay. That's all right. Uh, thank you so much uh, to both of you, Beth and Greg, for uh, coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your work with our listeners. I really enjoyed reading the book. I uh, enjoyed it even more uh, talking to you about it. And it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it was good to be here. <laughs>